Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Come, Holy Spirit, and give us your love. Open your word. Lord, we listen to your word because we want to be changed by it. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to be edified. We're here to be strengthened, to be taught, to be challenged by your word, Lord. We're on a quest. We want revival. We want want normal Christianity. We want you to do in us whatever you need to do. None of us sits here figuring we're all right. We all understand we're in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, whatever way you want that two-edged sword to come in and and heal us and challenge us and change us and grow us, we welcome it. I welcome it. Come, Lord, and teach us now from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you'd open to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 32. You recall how we got where we are. Um, Peter and John healed a man who was lame uh, from birth. He, uh, the miracle just caused an enormous gathering and people came to, to Christ. Uh, they got in trouble for this. They all got arrested, Peter and, and John, as well as the man who got healed, uh, and brought before the, the Supreme Court of Israel, the highest of the high. They've got the high priest, his, his, his direct relatives, who cycle through the high priest's job, and they've got the Sanhedrin, the elders of of Israel. And here's Peter and John and the lame man standing in front of this seated semicircle. They have this trial. They're they're challenged uh, and told, uh, threatened. If you don't stop, we're going to hurt you. Uh, Peter and John answer, uh, look, you can decide whether we're supposed to obey men or God, but we're going to obey God. Uh, we're going to speak what we've seen and heard. They, they make absolutely no assurance that they'll stop. In fact, they say we won't stop. But because of the political situation right now, you've had this incredible healing. It is awkward to imprison them uh, or beat them. So they let them go with a, with a threat. Uh, they go back to the church. Uh, they, they report to the church uh, what's been the threats and all that have, that have come against them. The church responds with a great prayer. Uh, they say, uh, you're the creator. Uh, you are, you are uh, above all, I quote Psalm 2, and they basically said, give us more boldness. They don't say, just protect us, hide us, get us out of here. They say, give us more boldness, and then they say, and you do more miracles. We want to see more healings. We want to see more signs and wonders. Here's the deal. We'll speak about Jesus. You do miracles, God, and here we go. That's the response of that church. Aren't they something? All right, then, then Luke gives us this statement, and it's not offhand. It's not just sort of restating something for no reason. There's a purpose to it, and we'll see this. Verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Would you say one heart and soul? One heart and soul. Not one of them, and that's exactly what the Greek says, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace, actually great grace. And I love the phrase great grace. 
uh, you actually have in that verse great power and then you have great grace. Say great grace, would you? Great grace grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for there was not. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. How many people would become Christians today if being baptized meant the government would seize their bank account Their spouse would be free to divorce them and take all the assets. If they were a student, they'd be removed from school. If employed, they might be fired with no legal rights to protect them. Their parents might not speak to them again, declaring them dead. And the community in which they live would bar them from its gatherings. The fact is, such a price would be too high for many to be willing to pay. Even if they felt in their heart the gospel was true, the terror they would feel at the possibility of this kind of abandonment would prevent many from ever publicly confessing Jesus. Yes, of course, he said we must be willing to die for him, but for someone considering following him, the fear of such a backlash would be a real barrier. Wouldn't it have been for you? I mean, it's one thing in the United States to say, who wants to receive Jesus, you know, in your heart, and he'll help you and he'll make you rich. Oh, come on. And, and so there's our gospel. And, and here they are going, get baptized. The family throws you out. I mean, that's going on, you know, around the world now. Uh, I, was, I just talked to a woman. She's the president of our church in Zaire. She's a, 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 she's a, a successful businesswoman who's working uh, with, with, the, with the state government, and he, she's also the president of our, of our, of our movement in, in Zaire. And she was telling me her story. Mary and I were sitting there having uh, a meal with her, and she, she said, uh, when, I, when I received Christ, I came home, and I, I told my father I've received Jesus. And she said he, he, he slapped me across the face as hard as he could, and he said, get out of here. Uh, get out of here. I don't ever see you again. That was her welcome. And that goes on around the world, people. I said, how are they now? She says, well, I'm taking care of them in my home. In their old age. Isn't that something? There's your turn the other cheek. There's the turn the other cheek right there. Yeah, she's living it out. Anyway, this goes on. This, would you have... If you knew you'd lose your job, if you knew that all of this could happen to you, if you knew there was this, this kind of backlash, would you say, yeah, I'm receiving Jesus? Some would. Some would. But an awful lot of us would at least be real quiet about it, kind of in the heart and hope that was enough. In some countries of the world right now, they print your religion on your driver's license. And I talked to believers, and they, they said, well, I, we, we don't change the driver's license. Because, man, the minute that gets changed, we're, we're, we're in hot water. I believe that a similar situation faced the Jerusalem church. To be baptized in the name of Jesus was a dangerous thing to do. A person could be left suddenly destitute, and many were. But impelled by the love in their hearts and led by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, these early believers immediately rallied to take care of those who had been abandoned for their faith. And I believe the numerical explosion of the church in that hostile environment was directly related to their spontaneous generosity. The question facing us today 
as we consider their example is this. Will we respond with the same depth of love and wisdom to remove the barriers our culture places in front of those who are considering following Jesus Christ? Instead of being frightened by the threats made against them, believers in Jerusalem became even bolder in their public ministry and more selfless in their care for one another. Their sacrificial giving, which Luke tells us was part of this church from its first days onward, didn't die out, but grew as the weeks and months passed. Becoming a Christian meant one would be drawn into a community which shared in a common basket. Now, I I believe the word, the koinonia, the concept for them, koinonia, was the common basket from the experience of Israel with the manna. Remember what that was? Every morning you would go out and you would gather the manna, the carbohydrate, whatever it was that was on, on the ground. And the young and the old, everyone would go out and there'd be these huge baskets placed there. And if you were young, you're probably grabbing up handsfuls of this stuff and just putting in tons of it. If you're old, you know, and you got the bad back, you're, okay, we're going to get some manna here, you know, and you're putting in your little bit. So some put in a lot and some put in very little but when it came time to receive, everyone took their basket. There, 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 there's a, a, one, be a basket about that size, and they would dip in, and they would take their daily basket. Everyone got the same. Everyone didn't put in the same. You understand? That's koinonia. It's life around a common basket. It's having life together. And the early church was practicing that. Those who had resources gave into the common fund. Those who had need received from it. Luke describes this growing church, which by now contained thousands, as the multitude and says they were one heart and soul, meaning their unity was both emotional and physical. They not only felt love for one another, but expressed that love in selfless deeds, particularly by helping believers who were poor. And such generosity was not present in merely a few of them, but in virtually all of them. For Luke says, and not one said, of, said any of his possessions was his own, but all things were common. Notice the word koina. That's the word common there. What, what does it sound like? Koina nia. Right, exactly. To them. Within a year or two, a violent purge led by Saul of Tarsus would drive away many, drive many believers out of Jerusalem. But until then, the amount of persecution a believer might experience appears to have been to have varied from person to person. We see in the Jerusalem church a puzzling amount of poverty, which continued to exist for decades. I believe that it was largely caused by the hostility individuals suffered at the hands of their own family and community. Some went relatively untouched, while others appear to have been instantly impoverished. Very likely this resulted because spouses divorced them, Parents and siblings ostracized them. Their businesses were boycotted. Their employment was terminated. And synagogues disfellowed them. Criticizing their generosity. Believe it or not, the generosity of the Jerusalem church has been the subject of much criticism. Rather than admiring what they did, many over the centuries have looked for ways to dismiss it as foolish. Here are three of the most common criticisms. People say they gave so sacrificially because, number one, they had a, quote, 
immature view of the second advent. Notice I do not tell you where I get these quotes, and I don't intend to. I mean, I'm not going to hold somebody up to ridicule, at least not tonight, today. Um, mean, meaning these sincere but ignorant people thought Jesus would come back in a few weeks or months, so they didn't mind selling off their financial assets because they wouldn't need them. They had an immature view of the second advent. So here's these naive little guys and gals going, he's coming back any day now. So what the heck? Let's sell everything off. You know, we had a, uh, a situation with a cult a while back with the Hale-Bopp Comet. Any of you remember that one? Yeah, and, and it, they uh, thought they were going up and joined the Hale-Bopp Comet, I think. Um, and so everybody charged up their bank cards. You're not going to be around to pay it off anyway. Come on. Now, if any of you are thinking such things about December 12th, (laughs) come on, don't you dare. Don't you go there. That's in effect what they're implying. Rather than admiring what's going on here or even letting it understand it, we're saying, well, they uh, they just didn't know what we know. Number two, they, oh, they were overwhelmed by a, quote, unnatural excitement. Would you all say unnatural? No, don't say unnatural excitement. <laughs> Meaning they temporarily lost their common sense. They got caught up in a group hysteria that said, let's prove how much we love Jesus by selling everything and giving the money to the poor. So they just went nuts and sold everything off and ended up destitute. Cool. Number three. Their unreasonable, this is my favorite, their unreasonable disposal of assets led to their, quote, later poverty of the Jerusalem church caused by this over-hasty dissipation of capital. Over-hasty dissipation of capital. Meaning they foolishly impoverished themselves and became a burden on the Gentile church later on. Those poor idiots. I'm not even going to ask if you've heard it, but if you've read almost anybody's commentary, you have. People don't like this passage. It offends them. It offends them because, boy, we sure don't want to have to do it, <laughs> for one thing. And I think we just don't plain understand it. Let me tell you, this is, this is the only place in the world you'll ever hear this, what you're about to say. So either I'm starting my own cult or I'm right. I think it's B. Here we go. Brilliant missiology. The fact is, there is very little information about the persecution these believers faced in the first months of the church. Luke describes the official opposition by the nation's religious leaders, but says nothing about the hostility individuals encountered when they went home after being baptized. But in my opinion, the sudden presence of so many poor believers must have an explanation. Remember, the Jews were an industrious, family-oriented people, so there wasn't wide-scale hunger. Yes, there were poor among those who were physically unable to work, orphans, widows, those with contagious disease like leprosy. But Judaism held a strong value on giving alms, and this provided a level of care for these. I believe the traditional criticisms leveled against the generosity of the apostolic church are terribly mistaken and have prevented us from seeing the powerful principle that was at work here. This wasn't foolish exuberance, it was brilliant missiological strategy. And it made the rapid expansion of the church possible, even though it was located in an unusually hostile environment. 
Without this safety net, growth in that city would have been strangled almost immediately. The price of following Jesus would have been way too high for most to pay. They would have been faced with a terrible choice. If you become a Christian, you'll end up alone and starving. And the church removed that. Let me, let me give you an example. Just flip to chapter to six there. This is uh, a chapter, by the way, which is interesting in its own right. We're, we're, we're dealing with so many widows, so many, quote, widows, that we have to appoint seven adult men to oversee the management of the extent of just caring for the widows. What do we have, the Black Plague go through or something? Why are all these women alone? I suggest to you they've been thrown out of their homes. I suggest to you they've been divorced and left on the street. And then look at, look at, look at uh, verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of what? Priest. Say priests. Priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, anyone know anything about their boss? Who's the boss? Caiaphas and Annas. Uh, they aren't big on Jesus. Uh, we know how they feel. They've just hold, held a whole gathering and threatened. The, and in fact, at this point, they've already beaten them badly. There's not a priest on this team that doesn't know what will happen when they get baptized, because that's what these guys did. They didn't just raise their hand somewhere, believe in their hearts. They got baptized. They came out of the closet, and they died and rose with Jesus. And those, there's no hiding it. I'll guarantee you they were on the street the next day. So where do they go? How do they eat? If I receive Christ and I'm, and I'm ostracized, I'm thrown, to the, thrown out. You know what it means? It means you get thrown out of the community. It's like you're out of the herd. You're abandoned. You're away from us. Where did they go? The church. They took them in. They took them in and they really took them in. Not just a, a little, I'll take you to lunch sometime. They fed them. They took them into their homes. Responding in love and led by the Holy Spirit, our forefathers and mothers removed that obstacle, beginning the first day of the church's existence, because that's when it needed to start. Basically, they said, your soul is more important than my retirement fund. Why don't you read that? Your soul is more important than my retirement fund. I mean, I ask myself right through this thing, and I'm not trying to, this is not, I'm not loading some kind of guilt trip. I think this is the issue. What would I pay for a soul? What would I pay to rescue someone and make it possible for them to come to Christ? What would I do? What would, and, and when it comes down to that, when you now have, you have faces and names and people, what would you sell? By the way, I'm not even going to talk about money. That's not where I'm headed for us today. But that's where their issue was. How much would I sell? What would I give? What sacrifices would I make to make it possible for someone to come to Christ? Basically, they said, your soul is more important than my retirement fund. Their shocking generosity announced to everyone in the city. Don't tell me that wasn't noticed. 
If you're left destitute after being baptized, we'll care for you. As if you were our own flesh and blood, we'll become your new family. We'll take you in and feed you for as long as you need it. Notice this wasn't a short-term program. It was a long-term commitment. Those who still owned land or houses, I assume beyond those in which they were living, I assume that, sold them to provide funds to feed the growing number of impoverished believers. All donations were brought to the apostles who distributed them in an organized and equitable way based on a person's particular needs. Some needed more than others. Notice, please, this wasn't people just going into the house meetings going, I'm on the street, what am I going to do? And the guy reaching in and saying, here's 50, I'll, you know, God bless you. It wasn't that at all. It was all, it was organized, it was equitable, and it was handled by the leaders. The money was given to the apostles who then distributed to the needs as each one they discerned had need. Isn't that brilliant? This is not some, some ragtag bunch. This is, they really are remarkably uh, intelligent in the way they do things. In this level of genero- if this level of generosity were simply the proper expression of discipleship, in other words, we are all supposed to respond like the rich young ruler, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. If it was a general principle, the apostles would have taught and practiced that everywhere they went, they didn't. Do you hear that? This is a response to the need of the moment, and a brilliant one. They took the threat off the table. There was a massive attempt immediately to stop this Christianity, and it was ostracism, you're out. And they said, no, you're in. And they did everything in their power to provide for people. And so you, when you became a Christian, you, if your family threw you out, another family took you in. The threat of ostracism is an effective way of stopping most evangelism. And it's still used today in many cultures. A person who is ostracized is totally cut off from family and or community, leaving them alone and desperate. But the Jerusalem church quickly drew new believers into a close family-like relationship, like the day you came That's the house-to-house part. And in doing so, heard each other's story. They soon discovered the circumstances individuals were facing at home and were able to respond right away with real practical help. Their intense community and selfless generosity removed the threats of abandonment and starvation. As the years passed, the hostility in that city was so persistent That their local resources gave out, which is why believers in other cities and nations began to send help as they were able. When you hear that, and then you hear people commenting about early experiments with communism, isn't that disgusting? Isn't that incredibly disgusting and stupid? The lack of insight that people have when they go to the Word. It's because they don't submit to it. You've got to submit when you read the Bible. It's your judge. You're not its. You don't sit there and you listen and say, God, what's here? What am I supposed to see? And he'll show us. He wants us to see. What can we give? All right, now we turn and let's talk about you and me. In that culture, being of one heart and soul meant sacrificial giving of money. They sold whatever they could spare so new believers wouldn't starve. 
But in our culture, most people aren't brutally thrown out of our families, fired from our jobs, divorced by our spouses, etc. At least not to the same degree. The barriers placed in front of us are different. We too face threats. But ours are much more relational than physical. Becoming a Christian in our culture tends to isolate us from friends and family. As time passes, we no longer feel comfortable doing some of the things we used to do. And we can end up feeling very alone. Our faith may be mocked or viewed with suspicion until we withdraw in silence. The threat in our society is different. If somebody does fire you because they're, a, they're some sort of religious bigot, you can probably get another job. You're not going to starve. You just, you have to, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, we'll pray you through it, but you'll get another job. The money, it's, it's, those issues are there, but it isn't the same for us. It is in other cultures in the world, but it's not here. For what happens for us? People, when they think about becoming a Christian now, they realize when I become a Christian, and as it's becoming less and less popular, more and more hostility, I know I'm going to be alone. My family may, may well reject me. My friendships, you know, you, you've been having all this fellowship at the bar or whatever else, and now all of a sudden, as time, that goes away. And so what happens for a lot of people as they consider becoming a Christian is it means I'm now going to leave my friends and be alone. And what has the traditional church offered? What kind of friendships and fellowship and warmth have we replaced it with? Hi and how are you in the foyer before we get in our cars and go home? We, We haven't provided. I mean, I'm not saying we don't do any of this. We do. But you understand, as you put it in perspective, we've got a ways to go, all of us. I I think you're a great church. This isn't a criticism against us. But but as we listen to this word, these believers made huge personal sacrifices to get the barrier out of the way so that people could come to Christ in their city. And for you and me, it isn't primarily financial. What is the sacrifice we would make? The painful, awkward sacrifice we would make to remove a barrier? Time. Making time for people. In the middle of our busy, tired weeks. Long commutes. Multiple jobs. Oy vey. The idea of giving any more time is just, I'd far rather give money. But that's what's needed in our time. The barriers placed in front of us are different. We too face threats, but ours are more relational. Can those considering Christ be confident that they won't end up desperately alone? Will there be a real family waiting for them? If old relationships grow cold, will new ones take their place? In order to remove this barrier, the price we must pay isn't primarily money, it's time. People who become Christians in this culture need friendship. They need a church that will welcome them into a new family. They need people willing to sacrificially give of their time to be friends and mentors. And for busy, tired people, the idea of giving up needed rest and recreation To spend time with people 
can feel just as costly as having to sell an asset to feed the poor, but it can also be just as powerful. I uh, was on a phone call Friday to South Africa and just talking with uh, the Xavier Adrianza, who was our, our host there in Cape Town. And he, he actually was calling me from, uh, from uh, Johannesburg. And he'd just gotten back from being up in Zimbabwe uh, with, the, with the churches there. And he, he said, I just want to give you a little res- reply of how, how the, the leaders felt about the, the conference and all. And he said, one of the things that has come up again and again is people were very, very grateful that, that, that you and Mary actually sat and, and gave them individual time. He said, that doesn't always happen. He said, often the speakers will be whisked away after they get off the platform and, and they don't talk to anybody. And they said the fact that you and Mary sat and talked with people meant a, a great deal to them. Now, from our perspective, we weren't doing anybody a favor. I mean, can you imagine getting the chance to talk with the, the, the president of the, of the Foursquare Church in Zaire and, and say, what's going on in Zaire? You know? I mean, it's fascinating. Are you kidding? Anyway, but what, what are they longing for? What are you longing for? What do people need? They need somebody to listen to them, to listen to the dreams in their hearts, to listen to what God is doing, to, to care, to feed back, to encourage. Encouragement's huge. I'll have a gathering this week of pastors. And, and basically, just getting in there and looking at what God's doing and encouraging them. Don't we need that? And it takes time. Uh, years ago, young men, I, I, people would ask, pastors would say, would you mentor me? And I'd say, no, nobody ever mentored me. Buck up. <laughs> I did. In effect, that was nicer than that, more spiritual. <laughs> and, and finally, one guy said to me, I, he said, would you mentor me? I said, no. I went through my little routine. And he said, would you give me 30 minutes a year? He was not being rude. It wasn't like, so Steve, 30 minutes, huh? It wasn't that at all. He meant it, which is what hurt. And I, and I stopped and I really felt convicted and I said, let me pray about this. Because my response was, I'm exhausted now. I haven't got time now for my own family, let alone anything else. I don't know how to mentor. And all I ever knew about mentoring was, was uh, you had to hang with somebody. And I thought, hang with somebody? I don't, I don't get to be with my wife. I'm sorry. I'll, she comes first. And, 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 and so I went to the Lord and I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, do something. Does he bother you at times? <laughs> Is this just his responses? Do something. Like what? Anything. Okay. So I, I just thought, okay, let's try this. And that was like four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, as I say this week, there'll be a, there'll be a gathering. And, and, and what did I find? I found that I could find a place. I was sitting talking to a, a, a brother recently and, and, uh, I was challenging him to take some personal discipline steps in, in an area. And, and as I did it, quietly in the back of my heart, the Lord said, and so what are you going to contribute to this process? And I quietly said to the Lord in the back of my heart, are you kidding? 
I have no more time. I, and I, 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 that was my perspective. I ha, I'm sorry. And he, and, he, and he said, what about that right there? And he points to a little half hour slot. <laughs> All right. And so I, I said, I just feel like the Lord spoke to me. Would you like to meet? And I don't do this easily. Yes, and now we've been meeting. It works fine. What I think God is going to be talking to us about in our culture, each of us, this isn't a program for the church, but each of us begins to ask, Lord, who are you putting in my life? Where I've been too tired and too busy. Who are you asking me? Some of, some, who, some of you older men and women, who would you... The, what younger people would he put in your life? So what are some of the older people that are being neglected and just need someone to love them and be with them? What are, what are, what are people that you know, if someone just would spend time, an LTG, a life group, would just be with that person? You just see certain, you see people alone. They're partly alone because they don't do what the world does. And yet they're not finding the family in the church. See, if we're going to ask them to leave the fellowship of the world we have to offer the fellowship of the church i'm not talking programs i'm talking where you welcome people into your heart as friends where you care about people where there's an investment or there's a long-term investment not just i'll meet you for coffee sometime but it's where i'm willing to be your friend and to love you that i believe is the costly thing, the sacrifice we are called to make. Father God, as we sit before the word of God and we see our brothers and sisters, sparing nothing to take that terrible threat off the table so that Jerusalem could believe Or just in one sense, we all we apologize for misunderstanding them, for not seeing what was going on, for being so dull, for the accusations and the, the degrading things that have been said about them. As they clearly followed the leading of the Holy Spirit and made possible an enormous gathering tens of thousands. I've heard estimates of up to 100,000 as the years went on. In Jerusalem. Forgive us. And Lord, we today, as we, we see afresh what they did and who they were, the sacrifices they made, and Lord, we reflect on our own cities, our own community, our culture. You ask nothing less of us, but it's different. Would you grace us, Lord, busy, tired people, mothers with children, fathers with long commutes, mothers with long commutes, people who are worn out by life in its own way. And then you, the thought, Lord, of giving our time, of making time for someone else, is really hard. We pray for your 
wisdom, your revelation. We pray that this, this has got to be, it's a free will offering. There was no program in Jerusalem. This was something they did, heart by heart. We ask you to speak to us heart by heart. Grace us to love like this. Grace us to see who and where and how. And we just thank you, Lord, that as we move this direction and take that loneliness off the table, take that threat of isolation off the table, and say, come and welcome into our family. I bless you, Jesus, for the many people who will come to Christ in our city. It'll have the same power in our cities that it had in Jerusalem. So, Lord God, we're following. We want We want your full anointing. We want normal Christianity. We want revival. Come and do your work in every one of us. Start with me, Lord. I have no doubt that there's more to go. Guide and grace us each. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Now, if you're willing for the Lord to really speak to you, if you say, as he asks me to give up time, as he asks me to schedule something or put something somewhere as I know it's him I will do it I will do it and I'll trust him for the strength I'll trust him for for the for the uh, uh, the the repercussions of it I'll trust him but I will follow him this isn't out of impulse this is not a guilt but I get it he's going to ask for something precious so that someone else can find Christ and I'm responding and saying yes if that's you would you say yes Lord hear our prayer Lord teach us now teach us all my hands up too we ask it in Jesus powerful name amen thanks for listening if you like this podcast please click the like button subscribe and share it with a friend for more information just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.